Welcome to Space Talk at SpaceRaf. SpaceRaf is a privately owned media company focusing on everything space. Since 1999, we've been reporting on Space Online and now also in our magazine, Space Quarterly. We have many websites on a wide variety of topics. You can start at spaceraf.com and go from there. This podcast was recorded on July 10th at the bi-monthly meeting of the Canadian Space Commerce Association in Toronto. You can learn more about this organization on their website, spacecommerce.ca. The featured speaker at this meeting was Jean-Marc Trinard, a veteran at the Canadian Space Agency, who is head of policy and regulatory affairs. In his first public talk on today's topic, he discusses the United Nations Working Group on the Long-Term Sustainability of Outer Space Activities. The Canadian Space Agency feels that it is very important Canadians be engaged in this UN activity, as it will affect them in the future. The Canadian Space Agency will be soliciting input from Canadians this fall in preparation to submit Canada's input into the final UN report and guidelines that will be published in 2014. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Accompanying documents can be found on the SpaceRef Canada website at spaceref.ca, and a link is included in the podcast text on iTunes. Term sustainability uh, and what's coming up in Canada and why I'm here today. Uh, actually, I've distributed my presentation because some of these words might be too small for you to read at the end, but anyway, so uh, if you have it now, and I'm willing to distribute the electronic version as well, and I have a few other documents if you're interested. So the issue, uh, back when COPUS was created in uh, 50 years ago, uh, there were very few actors in space, you know, the US, Canada, Russia, and that was it for a little while until the Italian came in. Uh, so now they, the world has changed. Everybody is up there, including developing countries, including universities, including private sector. It's no longer a state business, it's business of everybody, democratized. Uh, we have more than traditional satellites for communication and remote sensing and GNSS. Now we have servicing, tourism, exploitation, CubeSats, you name it, a number of new services. A new one that's coming out on the block is called AIS from Space, an automatic identification system from ship. And that, you know, five years ago, nobody was talking about that except some obscure scientists in their labs, but now it's a business moving. So there will be more of that in the future. It's presumably an exponential curve. And in summary, space is increasingly easily accessible for everybody because small satellites are cheap, you can finance it, and there are companies willing to build them in series. And actually, the consequence of this is the last three words which are used by the militaries now, they contested, competed, and congested. Actually, it reflects an overcrowding of space. It reflects the amount of interference that's increasing there as well and debris, because there are lots of debris. You know the figures, 20,000 debris of a 10 centimeter wider. And if you go to one centimeter, it's about 500,000 debris there. And we aren't able to follow them up, so they might need to run it up. So the evolution of this thing, uh, in the beginning, it was a dream. Uh, then it became a bit discretionary, and now it's an essential feature of all our services on the ground, be it positioning, telecommunication. We cannot do without space today. Let's think about banking, orientation, and what have you. And follow, this followed the usual trend. Uh, there was an article published by scientists a few years ago that says, well, in the beginning, you do something, and researchers find, oh, yeah, it, it works. You know, it has potential to be applied somewhere. And then you have those people who apply it at the second generation, and actually it enhances the activity, more productive, cheaper, perhaps. But eventually, these things change the manner in which people do their job. 
And we are at that point now with space exchanging our life. So we get into something that was more individualism to something that's more mutualism. And when you see great country working together to launch satellites, when you see Nigeria doing business with somebody else, actually they are getting together. Nobody's launching its own birds anymore. It's always in collaboration. But the more there are those actors, the more, of course, there is a problem because it's a finite, finite environment. What's the difference between security and sustainability? Security is about being free of danger, and sustainability is about being able to maintain an activity at sustainability level in the future. So what it means, space security is more or less the business of the spacefaring organization. It's about preserving order, predictability, safety. So you want we put something in space, we want to make sure it stays there and it operates. And sustainability is we want to make sure that we are able to put it there in the future for the next generations and that it will work as well as today. It won't cost more than it cost perhaps. So it's essentially about recognizing that it's a finite environment, it's a limited natural resource out there. It's acknowledging that technology is a critical tool to support sustainable development on Earth. And it's also ensuring that all humanity can continue to use space for future purpose and social economic benefits. So that's what sustainability spells out. And I have some reference on that if you love reading. So COPWAS is a UN organization created in 59 by 24 member states. Canada was a founder. Now there is about a 72 or 73 member states, some new additions over the last couple of years. It has two committees, essentially a legal subcommittee, all, you know, those legal eagles that sit together and talk about these things. And those who really do the job, the science and technology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it doesn't work well because it works by absolute consensus. So if there is one member state around the table that does not agree, it doesn't go forward. And that's why in the beginning, COPOS was able to have a number of treaties uh, put together, this Harbor Space Treaty, the Moon Treaty, the um, rescue astronaut and, and everything, but uh, over the last 30 years, we haven't been able to achieve any new treaties. We are more working into the direction of non-binding code of conduct, strength, transparency, confidence building, measure, all that jazzy stuff that essentially says, well, you should do it, you know. If you don't do it, we won't put you in jail, but you would be on the other side of the table. And so this, these are the accomplishments of COPOS over the last uh, 50 years, uh, and most of them date uh, all the treaties that date quite a while. What is more recent are some guidelines, for example, the space debris mitigation guidelines that were adopted in 2007, uh, pursuant to uh, the Interagency Debris Committee, IEDC. The IEDC has its own guidelines, but they are more technical. The COPOS guidelines are more policy uh, type of guidelines, but, but they are mutually compatible. CSC, for example, just adopted formally the IADC guidelines for all its future missions because we are now a member of the IADC since last year, so we've made that determination, and we will be encouraging other organizations in Canada to tell us out this world in order to adapt into the guidelines as well. We have also nuclear power source uh, uh, guidelines that have been adopted, and uh, there might be others in the future that uh, will be recommended. Sustainability started in 2005. Carl Deutsch is a 
Canadian. He's the one who led the Canadian Space Program, the Canadian Space Station Program since inception. He left the agency around 2002-2003. So he was the first one to articulate the issue and talk about it. His successor at COPE was Gérard Brachet, a French guy. He continued the trend and with France, with the head of France, he led uh, uh, the development of a big paper that's still available on the web to read that really set the stage for sustainability. What is it? How is it going to impact us? And what shall we do today to make sure that tomorrow, and not tomorrow in 50 years, tomorrow, next year, in three or two years, it's not going to cost a fortune to send something in space and it's going to work. We decided that COPE was in 2009 to create a working group to address the issue. In February 2010, it's long, you know, UN doesn't work fast. So a year and a half later, we adopted the terms of reference and we started work this year, really, in February. Uh, the working group met, and the working group has created some expert groups. I'm going to come back on that. The objective of the, the working group on LTSOSA, Long-Term Sustainability, is to examine and propose measures to ensure the safe and sustainable use of outer space for peaceful purpose for the benefit of all countries. Many words. It, 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 it reads well, it sounds well as well. But there is a lot of policy and political uh, aspirations behind that. And there are some challenges as well. Number one, not everybody in every country means the same thing when we use the word sustainability. Number two, uh, we have a number of other words that don't quite mean the same thing. Space situational awareness doesn't mean the same thing in Europe and in the United States, trust me. Space faring, uh, if you are a country that uh, buy a satellite from a foreign provider, finance it in New York, and launch it from Russia. Are you a space farming company? Interesting. Safe, from a treaty standpoint, you may be. Safety has different meaning and remediation as well, and a number of others. So we have space actors that are concerned also that any resolution in the future, any guideline doesn't cost them more money, doesn't prevent their access to space. And as well for those space-faring nations today, they want to be able to continue to do more or less the same thing as they've been doing in the past. And they all sit along the same way. And of course, uh, we have already a number of uh, legal and economic implications that have to be addressed in that. So the, this working group later last year will last until 2014 and will examine all the issues in the broad context of sustainable development on Earth, including contribution to the Union of the Development Goals, this is the UN stuff, and taking into account the concerns and interests of all countries. The work will take into consideration the current practice, the current legal environment, but as well procedures, technical standards and policy, and aim at identifying gaps things that should be developed where there is none today that will help use space uh, as easy as we do today in the future. And of course, the, the, the framework that we have today uh, with the treaties and everything will continue to remain there. John, can I ask a question? It's fine. On, you. on the last point regarding the framework and the existing <coughs> treaties, yeah. uh, would the Moon Treaty be given similar treaties to the Outer Space Treaty, given how few people have, yeah. few countries have? About the 13 countries have signed the Moon Treaty so far, and Canada did not, uh, the US did not. So those countries that have signed are essentially those countries that who do not, I mean, 
they do not have the capacity to get there in the past and won't for a little while. And I think at that only seven have ratified. Well, maybe, yes. Okay, and uh, yeah, if it, essentially the Moon Treaty is nothing new. If you read the Outer Space Treaty, the Moon Treaty is almost an expansion mm -hmm. of that. But there are some interesting words in there about exploding. Mm -hmm. uh, Quick question. Uh, are all the key players members of COPUS, as in China, yeah. United States, Russia, European yeah. Union? There so 72 member countries. Yeah, all, all the key players, players are, are in there. Okay. Well, I guess my question was, does this um, working group feel itself to be bound by the terms of the new treaty? Yeah. It's a UN treaty. It's there. It's ratified. It's in place. So we're mm -hmm. bound by that. So that's bound to create some uh, friction. Severe limitation. Then I got you interested. <laughs> How do we get on there? <laughs> so uh, the what the committee will end up doing is prepare a long report, lots of words, um, on this thing and propose a consolidated set of current best practice and operating procedures, standards and policies. It will produce a set of voluntary recommended guidelines such as space debris guidelines, nuclear power source and space guidelines, and so on. Um, and uh, 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 to be applied by almost everybody, depending on national legislation. Uh, and the objective is to reduce collectively the risk of space operations and to ensure that all countries are able to have equitable access. It doesn't mean equal, just equitable. Uh, and recommendation will be non-binding. <laughs> little word there, non-binding doesn't mean non-legal. Uh, even if they are non-binding, after a little while, those lawyers will tell you that they take a life of their own and they become more or less binding. So even if it's non-binding, we have to write them very carefully. And for this to happen, it has to be translated into national law, licensing practices or everything. So you might expect sometime down the road that there might be a space law in Canada. The guidelines should create a framework to improve the safety of, of space operation and to protect the space environment from debris, from interference, or any other source, including space weather. They will be voluntary and non-legally binding, and they shall be consistent. They will take into account the needs and interests of the developing country, and uh, they will be consistent with everything we've done in the past and that Canada supported. To do this, the work has been divided in four groups. <coughs> and uh, they have started their work. Uh, they meet on the margin of the COPOS meeting. One meeting of the Science and Technology Subcommittee is in February. The full meeting of the COPOS is in June every year. And on top of that, they will also meet on the margin of the IEC. And this year, the IEC is in Napoli in Italy in October. Uh, the membership comprises experts from the member state and from intergovernmental organizations that are member of COPOS, sorry, observer of COPOS. Uh, inputs can be received from those international organizations, but as well from non-governmental organizations through the member state. That's me. That's why I'm government, I'm CSA, I'm representing Canada at COPOS. So that's why I'm here today in order to inform you and eventually seek your contribution, your input, your worry about uh, what's going on. And of course, the final decision will be made by member states on a consensus basis. So if I don't agree, well, 
this um, committee, uh, this working group interfaces with almost everybody. As I mentioned, there might be gaps, for example, between what COPOS is doing and what the ITU is doing. COPOS has a registry of space subjects. The ITU has a registry of frequencies on the orbits. Well, you'd be funny to hear that they don't quite match. So um, what's the gap? What's happening between the two? And there might be other things like that that exist as well. So we want to make sure that we fill in all the gaps. Uh, so it interfaces with other UN entities as well, with non-space actors, such as the Intelsat, the UNETSAT uh, of this world. The Conference on Disarmament, I should have written that, that length there, which is another organization of the UN uh, concerned with the weaponization of space. And if you talk about space servicing and weaponization of space, it's getting very close. Um, and uh, there is also a new group uh, that has been created by the UN uh, General Assembly, which is called the Governing Group of Experts on Transparency and Confidence Building Measure on Space. They will start work uh, this month, I guess mid-July uh, in New York. They will work for about six months to define what those PCBM could be eventually. And the EU Code of Conduct, I should have removed the word EU, which stands for the European Union. In the European Union started the ball, but now the US have picked up in a number of other countries as well. So it's more now an I code, the International Code of Conduct, that's emerging from that. Uh, Canada is supportive of the initiative. Uh, to it will be a non-binding code of conduct that will uh, aim at putting together the big lines from the treaties plus other practices as well, so it will be an instrument to implement the recommendation of the uh, working group that I'm talking about here. So the first expert group uh, is A. It is going to talk about sustainable space utilization for sustainable development on Earth. That's the more complex one, because this is very difficult to define, very spread, and the others will see are more uh, compact. Uh, and it is aimed at looking at the contribution of science and technology to sustainable development on Earth, the concept of sustainable development to the domain of outer space, what does it mean for space, equitable access uh, for the limited resource of outer space for the benefits of, uh, sorry, equitable access to the limited resource of outer space benefits, and the international cooperation in peaceful use of outer space as a means of enhancing space sustainability. So this will, in the understanding of a number of people, become more or less an introduction to the recommendation of the group at the end because it is very vast, very broad. Expert group B is very much focused on space debris, space operation, and space situational awareness. Space debris will be, of course, to measures to reduce the creation of debris. We can think of uh, new materials, new method of building satellites, new method of operating them eventually. Um, Collection and sharing and dissemination of data on space subjects, the re-entry notifications, and as well technical developments and possibility regarding space debris removal. Uh, so there will be recommendation eventually addressing these. On space operations, we talk about collision avoidance, <coughs> the pre-launch and pre-maneuver notifications. And pre-launch has always been an issue where countries prefer to notify after launch especially in the U.S. when they launch the black satellites, and uh, common standards, best practices, and guidance. Uh, the uh, tools also to support space situational awareness. Space situational awareness is 
about whatever is going on in space around you. So there are a number of debris, other objects, etc. So uh, we want to be able to share information on this, but that's difficult because of number of military stuff that's up there. There is a line that's missing there, or it's just information sharing procedure. I think that's what about it. Expert group C is about space weather. They saw the solar interference to uh, satellites, and it has an impact on the ground as well, as you know. Uh, therefore, the worldwide collections, sharing, and dissemination of the information, the capabilities to provide a comprehensive and sustainable network uh, for all the sources of key data so that operators of space subjects have all the necessary information if there is a solar storm coming up and the open sharing of established practices and guidelines, uh, and as well consideration among states on ground-based and space-based weather observations. So if we have a history and tracking of phenomenon that occur uh, as a result of space weather, uh, we have a better ammunition to face future events. Uh, one particular element here, there are two cold shares, and one of the cold shares is a Canadian, Yan Man from the University of Calgary. So he's not representing Canada, he's an international culture. Wow, he's representing it. Expert group D is about the regulatory regime and guidance for space sectors. That's where the legal stuff comes in. Um, and uh, it's going to look at regulatory regime, adherence to existing treaties and principles, uh, review of the regulatory framework and tools, and as well the national regulatory frameworks for space activity. Um, Last year, the Legal Subcommittee of COPOS came up with a long list of instruments that states should implement nationally to, as regard the national regulation. It has not been approved by the June Committee. There were some issues with the Russians and others, uh, but uh, chances are that it will get to another round and next year it will be promulgated as a UN declaration. That will be a set of recommendations for new space faring states about what sort of legal framework and regulatory framework they should put in place. And this working group should provide guidance for actors in the space arena, old actors and new actors on standards, practices, lessons learned, and as well a technical and legal capacity building for developing countries. Um, it's all very nice to have all these legalities, but if the new space faring countries are quote unquote illiterate, about uh, that stuff, they won't implement it and they risk engaging in two activities that endanger the balance of space overall. So the status of the work, um, as I mentioned, they really have started work this year and the aim is to have an international workshop in February 2012 where you people could participate if you wish or where we could carry your brief and present your brief on your behalf. Um, and uh, as well, there will be a, a number of other organizations there. All the expert groups, actually, this comes to almost the same thing. They have started work, countries have started to write contributions on how they understand the subject, what they see, what are the gaps, where they should be going, and the cultures are putting this together. And this fall, they aim at having a, a sort of a strong end report that eventually will be up with the next year and in 2014, it should go <coughs> to a magnificent report. And that's about what we say. So. <coughs> so where do we stand in Canada? Uh, number one, we have uh, completed a study by consultant in 
sorry, not in 2012, that was in 2010. That's a mistake of mine, I'm sorry. Uh, and that's available, I can circulate it to you. The consultant has consulted with the usual tokens in space, in Canada, and uh, the who have expressed a high interest in communication, sovereignty, environment resource. Essentially, what they said is that their business depends on sustainable space. If there is no sustainable space tomorrow, NDE won't be able to sell more satellite, uh, Telesat won't be able to operate its telecommunication satellite of the geo orbit, and so on. And of course, they, they advocated that uh, was come up with recommended best practices on spacecraft, end of life, launch operations, space object, catalog image writing, space situation awareness, and you name We have designated experts, Canadian experts, on each of the expert groups that I just mentioned. You have the list in front of you of those experts and the coordinates. Uh, the Canadian co-chair, there is a Canadian co-chair expert group, Seek Space Weather. And Canadian stakeholders outside the government of Canada uh, should be consulted this fall. My intention is to create some kind of a workshop this fall. I'm not sure of the formula. I don't want to force people from all across Canada to travel to Ottawa. I'm trying to look at another formula, perhaps more economic but at least to, for you to be aware and have the opportunity to voice concerns or get together and create a paper position work. No, a position paper. So um, we will continue to inform you as much as we can. Uh, we will organize a network around the Canadian experts. If you're interested in space weather, uh, David Butler, who is a Canadian expert, We'll have your name on the list, we'll keep you abreast of what's going on, we'll provide you documents, ask your comments, so we will work with you. And the workshop in the fall, of course, with the planning subject under Bibliotapan will assess the Canadian impact and interest, and as well, try to define position and our priorities, and arrange for participation in February 2013 in uh, Vienna, if uh, there is uh, an interest to go there. If you are interested in more reading, I have more. Uh, the Secure World Foundation came up with this little pamphlet a couple of years ago, which is still pretty much up to date, but it is a, a la sauce American. Uh, it ends up on the US uh, policy development uh, stuff. But uh, the front part of it is excellent. And this is the consultant report that was conducted in 2010, and I can send you an electronic version of it if you want. It spells out, you know, the if you think of the MDA come there of this world, they, you can imagine what they said about this. So, uh, uh, but nevertheless, it informed our initial participation in that. But I can send you also other documents. They are listed there. Actually, rather than going on the UN website, which is very complex, you can just go on Google and type the number of document A slash AC, and it'll pop up to you immediately. And so, there is the. One big document, which is the terms of reference of the working group, and the other one uh, consists of four documents, and it's the work plan of each of the expert group, which flesh a little more uh, the subject matters and how we are going to do it and when. Uh, so in a nutshell, that's what I have to tell you. Yes. Uh, assuming a... A number of things get ratified over the next uh, five to seven years. Uh, is, is each country going to be responsible for keeping its space companies in line and, and um, as opposed to, say, the UN 
space patrol that you know maybe you need a is it the Canadian government the CSA that says to uh, you'd be surprised to hear that from a legal standpoint Canada is responsible for anything that Canadian does including you um, so by virtue of the Outer Space Treaty and the Liability Convention we have signed up internationally that any Canadian operating anything in space if he cause damage to other space subjects or to people on the ground through reentry, the government of Canada is responsible. Does that, I, I'm familiar with that one actually, but does that include if a Canadian company owned by Canadians launches into space from another country or outside of Canada? Okay, that's where the definition of space-faring nation comes in. And actually, the Netherlands, as one country, have decided they are not a space-faring nation, although they own over its satellite because it's a company abroad, and a launcher abroad, and a manufacturer abroad. So there are, there is work for the lawyers, <laughs> but there is an ambiguity there. The Canadian position there is: if you're a Canadian, if you launch from anywhere, you are an, an operator. So okay. yes, we are a space-faring. Is that, is that a policy? Yeah. Or a, it's not, it's not well, written in the law. It's a de facto. <clears throat> well, there is no space law. It's just a, a treaty, and the government is bound by the treaty. So we have assumed responsibility for all Canadians. 50 years ago, that was not an issue because there was no Canadian launching in space. Now we have University of Toronto. I mean, you pretend to launch also something in space. Who was it? Oh, yeah, you pretend to launch something. Nanosats or what? Yeah. <laughs> so our satellites are we're responsible good. for all these guys. Brent? <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I got a quick question. Uh, you said re-entry, responsible yep. for re-entry. Uh, with all this talk about space debris and everything, if a company goes out there, and, or a country goes out there and, and moves debris from one orbit to another yep. to get it out of that orbit, and then it comes down, in let's say my mother-in-law's backyard, you know, who's responsible? The person who launched it? The person who moved it? Okay. Where is that? That there you see there is a lot of room for the lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you wouldn't be allowed to do that because that debris or idle satellite is not yours. You're not allowed to touch it. So you can, if you operate a satellite, avoid. It. By okay. your own object, but you cannot touch it. Okay, it but if, if that's it, uh, if the satellite is operational, if the satellite yeah. is no longer operational, you cannot touch it. No, that's it. It's so not your if property. The country is no longer there. It just stays up there for until it, it comes back by itself, and it could be hundreds of years, or if it is in a low orbit, it could be about twenty-five years, yeah. which is the standard today. But take radar set one, for example. And at 800 kilometers, it would stay there for a long time. We have an opportunity to get it down by about a 50 kilometer, which would um, make it re-entry in 50 to 70 years. But in these days, in the early 90s, you know, re-entry wasn't even on the table to discuss. So all the stuff that was put up there in orbit by the Soviets? Oh, by everybody, by the Yeah, by no, the no, US. but I mean the Soviets no. who are no longer there. Look at the last accident uh, three years ago with uh, the Russian satellite that hit the Navidium satellite. It was a dead satellite. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and, and the dual <laughs> is the same thing. There is a lot of wrecks over there, and they're just standing uh, for in the graveyard orbit because at but some point, at some point, the gravity is a little less, so they all accumulate over there. Yeah. But, 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 but 
Are we not now just there for waiting for the Kessler syndrome to, to start happening? Because <laughs> at a certain some, point, some people say that it started to happen yeah. because the proliferation of the smaller debris um, has occurred, and we, we hope it will stop. Actually, this year is the first year where we see a little decline in the number of debris larger than 10 centimeters. But that might just be a temporary. Uh, it's, it's expected to increase in the future. So you're not allowed to touch the satellite of another person, even if it's a dead satellite. And if it's a debris, there is the question as to who owns the debris. Because there might be high star, high star stuff in there. You know? <laughs> that being said, if you were to interfere with a satellite that's up there, nobody's going to do anything to you other than the owner of the satellite. And if they're not inclined to do anything to you, yeah, uh, Iran is um, is effectively um, um, creating interference for a number of services in Europe. Sort of communications interference. Yes, yeah. it's done uh, that for a number of years. It's been reprimanded by the ITU, but so far uh, everybody refused to get up to the Security Council. But at some point in time, if many other like nations do the same thing, some measures would have to be taken. And Iran is making other countries cross it yeah. other, for other reasons, too. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell you other stories as well. Yes. <laughs> Not just space reasons, but a whole bunch of other reasons. Exactly. So, yes, sir. I, I, I just got to say, it looks like uh, MDA's contract with DARPA for on-orbit satellite servicing is going to move forward now, which means that in, in, in a couple of years, no matter what the law says, MDA's going to have the, 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 the capability and DARPA's going to have the capability to Whatever they want. Okay, well, I would say DARPA will, whether MDE, and I think MDE technologically has it now with robotics, uh, just needs a launcher in a space vehicle, yeah. but uh, it has the capacity to do it, uh, but it doesn't have the money. And uh, we have decided, government, that we're not providing that money. There are too many security issues involved in there, but the US effectively is moving in that direction. Actually, uh, when the Chinese duck their spacecraft last fall, there were more than just that. And uh, so the US, I guess, are just trying to catch up. Yeah, just for interest's sake, too, there's some students at University of Colorado working on methods to move geosync satellites without touching them. You charge them up and then you drag them magnetically. Yeah, cool. So, there be another legal. So, you recognize that the moment you have the capacity to interfere with another satellite, to service that satellite or do anything, you have the capacity to disable that satellite. Mm -hmm. And in time of war, that's a very crucial capability. So, so we are moving into a very uh, sens sensitive uh, domain. To an interesting era. Oh, uh, <laughs> now there is collaboration. There will be collaboration, and it's impossible to see that uh, the people will not collaborate. Even in the Cold War, the Russian and the uh, American had the handshake in space. But, uh, so there will be. It, it's essential. It's too dangerous not to have it. Um, I wonder if you could uh, elaborate on if if they are. Uh, uh, about uh, space, about resources, extraterrestrial resource explo exploitation, specifically things like mining. Um, how much is this uh, uh, committee looking at it? Yeah, it, it will effectively, from a standpoint of sustainable use of space, sustainable development of space, uh, exploitation is not forbidden by the space treaties. 
because if you want to establish a base on the moon or on Mars or anywhere, you are able to exploit what's out there to survive and eventually to develop and go further. Uh, what is not allowed is exploitation, uh, the type of mining stuff, getting back minerals on the earth or whatever, or even appropriation. Well, so, so the current frame, legal framework would prevent you to go on the moon and put a fence and say, this is mine. Right, but if you took a chunk mm -hmm. off and delivered it to Earth, is that breaking the rule? For a commercial purpose, yes. Yeah. For the time being, it is. So are, says the UN. <coughs> there are precedents. And, and those who signed the treaties. There well, that's are, there as are precedents the, amongst those countries. Though. Oh, yeah. Uh, people, look. People, people own things that have come back from the moon. Uh, court cases have yeah. been fought over those and their rights to those yeah. bits of the moon have been confirmed by courts in the United States and Russia, for example. So, so, so far it's not been an issue because the quantities are very small, but mm -hmm. the moment the quantities are getting larger and larger, now there the, would be significant. Now the moon treaty certainly restricts that in important ways. I, certain, there's, I don't know if you've been following the discussions in the open press in, um, in the news media in the last oh, six months regarding ways to interpret the Outer Space Treaty that would lead to opening up a regime of space mineral rights, mining rights, not property rights to the land, but the mining rights themselves. Um, oh, what's the name of the fellow? Rand Sinberg. Rand, have you seen Rand Sinberg's paper on the topic? I should send you a copy. Do you have it? Do you bring cards? No yep. Actually, my, it's on oh, okay. well, We have, there's a paper that, um, uh, Arnie, is it you? No, it was Chuck who put the paper together yes. to submit to the Aerospace Review on this topic. So I'd suggest that a copy of that to Jean-Marc would be very appropriate. At, at JetX, I'm doing a similar one. I'll send you a copy. Mm -hmm. Very good. So I should forward that to... I, I would think so. Sure. I'm, I'm sure the Aerospace Review wouldn't have any policy against... Anything that you submit is public. It's going to be public. I told it's your paper. Yep. And everything, all submissions are going to be made public in any case, we've been told. And this is exactly the exercise that I'm trying to stimulate here. At some point in time, you people will have to pronounce on some of the directions that are mm -hmm. taken here internationally. And if you have concerns, suggestions. Uh, I, I think you'll find that several people in this room would be very much in favor of Canada advocating for a space mining rights interpretation to the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, we are Canadians, we're leaders in mining around the world, and that is you know, something that we could uh, gain advantage from. Well, it's a little while away. The, oh, the, yeah. the American company um, just recently launched, Planetary Peter Diamandis. Resources. Sorry? Planetary, yeah, Planetary Resources are taking, initially it's a, let's, yeah. let's look to see if we can actually determine what an asteroid, small, big, or otherwise, is composed of and create targets of opportunity with eventually the idea of sending robotic missions there to extract minerals and so forth. So 10, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever. They're not at the present subscribing to UN policies or foresight on on this. Um, so to the point, uh, you know, having, having uh, rules and regulations that allow exploitation. Because the in the absence of it, or in the absence of the effort to get to it, those that, you know, the Wild West will simply just take the steps and will and will go do it anyway. And the rules um, will change. I, I have nothing against it, the lawyers. It, it, I'm kidding about the lawyers, but the lawyers do not develop 
Yeah. It's the, they follow the development, provide the framework. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> don't, don't expect that you and GoPost will provide a framework for, you know, forces will have to provoke something. Yeah. But what's, what's really interesting to me is, um, are there people within the Canadian Space Agency who have an interest in this sort of thing and talk about it? Uh, sorry? Uh, are there people within the Canadian Space Agency who have an interest in, let's say, the space mining topic, the space property rights topic, and discuss it? What's the CSA? Not the CSA's official view, but, you know. Well, the CSA is very much a technical body. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you speak to the Gilles Leclerc and his people on space exploration, there are people doing the technology. Uh, the policy is done at my place mm -hmm. uh, within the CSA and with the Department of Foreign Affairs International Trade mm -hmm. and DNP and the public safety. It's more the policy aspect. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they don't have opinions, and they're welcome. Yeah. You work with Phil Baines, by the way. Phil Bain is now moved to uh, um, another place in the world. Okay. Uh, yeah. He's gone. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Phil was the artisan of the Remote Sensing yes. Space System Act, and about four years ago, he became an agent of Foreign Services, and now he's a rotational basis in the world. Hopefully you see nice places. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. Well, actually, in the first few years, not that nice. Yeah, I guess not. So, Mark, can, can you? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to suggest, uh, have you talked with NARCAD about this? No. This is my first contact with the industry, except for the uh, uh, consultant report that was done two years ago. At some point, I would suggest talking with Dale Boucher at work at specifically because, one, he has some serious disagreements with somebody specific to some of the other space treaties, and two, he has uh, connections in the Canadian mining uh, community, because and, and they have some serious uh, reservations about some of the international treaties, and they're pretty deep, you know, they can drill, they can mine extraterrestrials. But, but that would be, be one of once again, um, what the windows are the, for us to get involved, you know, what dates that we shouldn't miss and places okay. we should be. A, a date that you would, which is not set yet, will be in the late September, October time frame, where I will organize an event where you people will be invited, will present to you what's up internationally, what are the issues you should pronounce on, and opinion your voice, and from that workshop, either in Ottawa or something else, somewhere else, uh, organizations like yours may prefer a greeting, a position paper, or many position paper on different subjects, and either you come and present them in February 2013, or the Canadian delegation will carry them for you. So it's, it's the dates are this fall for yeah. Canadian yeah. one, uh, and then um, was it February 2013? Yeah, to present them to the world. Yeah. And Vienna. Vienna. And after the Vienna, uh, there will be consolidation of all the reports, and those reports will be circulated back to you. You can again agree, disagree, or recommend something else up to 2014. In 2014, it's expected to the, the re final report will be uh, tabled. Okay, so yeah, if, if please. Um, Keep us informed Definitely. and we'll disseminate it to our members and our larger uh, okay. mailing lists and that. I think, uh, I don't know, we have probably a couple thousand people on the biggest list. And because uh, we, we really wouldn't want to miss the boat. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's why I mean. we want to be 
make sure. And actually, every member state of Popos is doing the same thing now, educating the industry. Some have already started a long time ago, but others are likely not starting. I, I take it they expect a big crowd in Vienna. <laughs> uh, possibly, yes. <laughs>